What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Uncle Bob, Bob Bowden. Okay, he's not my uncle, but I wish he was. Uh, I had trouble titling this episode. Do I refer to Bob as game show expert, game show historian? Because both would apply, truly. But Bob's a humble guy, and I didn't want to embarrass him. So we'll just call this episode Talking Game Shows with Bob Bowden. This is not just an executive interview. This is really a love story. This is a love story about one childhood dream, a boy who fell in love with game shows at a very early age and realized that dream of one day working in our industry. Talk to anybody that works in the Hollywood game show landscape, and they will tell you they have worked with Bob Bowden and think the world of him. He is currently the executive vice president of production and development at Entertainment Studios. That's Byron Allen's company. And he's the executive producer of Funny You Should Ask, their syndicated game show that is now in its second season. This is my sit down with Bob Bowden. I hope you enjoy it. want to hear how you were first described to me i'm afraid to know <laughs> okay so this is years ago uh i'm working with mike duffy at the time yes who we both we love mike know and love and tim one of the nicest guys in the business uh and we're working together and i think i had this game show concept and he was like you know if you sell this and it, it moves forward or you move into development in any way you have to hire bob Bowden oh. to come in and, and work on it. And I was like, Who, who's Bob? I've never met Bob before. He's like, Bob Bowden is like the, the, the foremost authority still working in the business on game shows. Oh. Bob eat, eats, sleeps, and breathes game shows. And that's why I was so excited to have you on the show because oh. I haven't talked about game shows really in an in-depth way with anybody else thus far. Right. And I just think there's something really – romantic about your affinity for game shows and how this is like a lifelong love affair. Yeah. You are synonymous with <laughs> one single genre, which to me is kind of beautiful, yeah. right? That you've built this reputation in this field. So I, I guess where I'd love to start with you is where did the love affair begin? I distinctly remember at the age of six and the minimum age to get in was six okay. at the time. So I couldn't wait till I was six so I could go to see a taping of a game show. And it was Password. Uh, it was taping at the Ed Sullivan Theater in, uh, in New York on Broadway. And I remember sitting in the balcony and looking down upon the stage and being so captivated by the excitement, the winning, the sound effects, the music – the play-along. I mean, even though I was only six, Password was a show that anybody could play because it was a one-word clue game. So I just loved that. And to boot, for the people in the balcony, they had this enormous, I'll call it a jumbotron. It wasn't called that back then. But it was this enormous TV screen because you couldn't see everything that was happening on stage. So they had this enormous TV screen it was the largest TV screen I had ever seen at the time, right. maybe to date still the largest. Right. And something about that just excited me beyond repair. And, and I just said, this is it. I want to be in game shows. How often did you go to tapings after that first one? Uh, did this become a regular thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we went, we went 
probably in the summer we would go at least once a week, if not oh more gosh. often. That's incredible. There were a lot of game shows, you know, in the in the 60s. And this um, continued throughout childhood and high school? You kept well, going once a week? Yes. In the summer? In the summer, uh, more often than that, if possible. Um, game shows stayed in New York in a big way until the mid-70s. And that's when I graduated from high school in 77. And so I was a regular at the $10,000 pyramid the $20,000 pyramid, the $25,000, every type of pyramid there was. So you knew all the ushers. I, yes. Everybody oh, yes. working on staff recognized Bob, the kid. Yes. I, I was there. I was one of the regulars, and I just couldn't get enough of it. Um, it, 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 it was my passion, my, my dream to be a part of it. I would stand outside the studio door at Pyramid waiting for Dick Clark to come out so I could get his autograph. And that'll come around later on in my right. life when I worked for Dick Clark. Right. But, um, describe, let's pause yeah. for a second. Describe for the younger listener out there. I mean, even people kind of, I'm, I'm 36 and I have a memory of Dick Clark, mm-hmm. but I wasn't around for like the early Dick Clark years, the, the total heyday of Dick Clark. Right. Describe for the listener who was Dick Clark at his prime? Well, to most people, they would say American Bandstand and his music connections because that's where he started. Those were his roots. I came into his sort of stratosphere in uh, in the 70s when he became a prominent game show host. He had done various game shows in addition to American Bandstand, uh, which was his greatest success and his calling card. Um but to me, uh, the Pyramid Show, which he started March 26, 73, um, was a did show. You just, wait, hold on. Did you just name the premiere date of Pyramid off the top of your well, head? Well, sure. It was March 26. Can I play that game with you with other shows? Uh, like, yes, if you promise to cut out the ones I miss. What's, <laughs> I'll what's, get most of them. What's the premiere date of Jeopardy? Jeopardy, uh, March 24th, 64. What's the premiere date of Wheel of Fortune? January 6, 75. Press your luck. September um, 83, I think the 16th. Price is right? The original was uh, November of 56. Uh, I don't remember the exact date. Um, the current one is September 4th, 72. You're crazy. It, yeah. it blows my mind. That blows this my mind. This is my thing. This okay. is my thing. Right. So, so March 26, 73, pir- so you're, pyramid. You're standing outside. You're the teenage <laughs> kid. You meet Dick Clark. Right. So was, what, did you go to California immediately out of high school? Yes. Um, Is that because the biz was out here? Yes, because the game shows moved to L.A. Okay. Um, most of them just became – Bob Stewart, who was an amazing producer, he lived in New York. He produced in New York, and then he finally was told, hey, you got to go out to L.A. to do game shows. So Bob Stewart, who was one of the premier and best game show producers, always produced shows in New York, and then – for whatever reason, he moved his operation mostly to L.A. And I thought, if I'm going to work in game shows, I have to go to L.A. So I was in high school in New York. I graduated. And I remember distinctly going to my college counselor and saying, uh, I want to go to UCLA. And he said, I kid you not, where is that? <laughs> okay, Because nobody in my high school had ever wanted to go to L.A. to college. Okay. They wanted to go to Queens College, which was down the street. So I said, it's in L.A., and he said, thanks. And then he came back to me a week later. He says, I've got the information, and he handed me a packet of material from USC. (laughs) I said, no, it's a different school. So I took it on myself. 
I it's did like, Bob, the why are you being so difficult? Uh, yeah. He'd <laughs> never heard. The college counselor had never heard of UCLA. So I, I took it on myself. Uh, I got into UCLA. I got a place to live at the dorm, which was the deciding point for me because I didn't know a soul in California. I'd never been here. I This was a big chance. I got on a plane at 18 just to start my dream. Wow. And my parents were, are you really sure about this? And all I could say is, I'll find out. And Your so, parents must have thought that you were kind of kind of out there to yeah. pursue a career in game shows. Yes. And were leaving home to go to L.A. purely just to find your way onto a game show. And uh, you didn't know if this was going to be you know, uh, a career that would bring you money. You didn't know if this is a, you didn't know how the life worked. Yeah. You didn't even know where to start. I just said, I think they shoot in LA. So I'm going to go to LA. That's, that was pretty much it. Um, I, I, to appease them, I applied to other schools on the East coast. I even applied to the Yale drama school and I Mm -hmm. won't forget my interview. I sat in a room with this very studious, uh, older gentleman, um, dressed to the nines. And he said, so tell me what are your career ambitions, Mr. Bowden? And I said, I want to be a game show host. And I could see the blood rush out of his face. He almost collapsed in fear that I might one day go to Yale. So didn't get in there. Um, UCLA, fortunately, didn't interview me, so uh, I got in. Uh, But all I had was a dream. I just just knew what I wanted, and uh, I knew enough about the history. I knew the names of the people I needed to track down. And that was the beginning. So what? So you get on the UCLA campus. You're staying in the dorms. Mm-hmm. Does your love of Vera for game shows now enter the dorm room? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, like were you the game show kid in the dorm? Yes. Um, I was a theater major. And as a theater major, I had very few classes that had final exams. So what I did um, for a study break during finals week when I had nothing to study for, I, will, I would hold Jeopardy tournaments in the dorm. And at 11 o'clock every night during finals week, all the kids from the dorm would gather in the conference room and we would play Jeopardy. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Like those, you've produced so many hours of television at this point. You've, you've worked at multiple networks. You've worked at various companies, but isn't it amazing? Like those memories you have of putting on those shows in college are probably some of your most treasured memories of anything having to do with game shows, are they not? Absolutely. I made I made lifelong friends. I still talk to many of my dorm buddies who were contestants. And I had a little bell, and I had the board. The show wasn't on the air at the time. Right. So I had the home game, and I would flip out the cards. And, you know, when it was Daily Double, I would ring that bell, and it was it was a blast. One of the funny anecdotes I heard on one of my game show experiences is we worked with a director by the name of Rich DePiro. I love Rich DePiro. Rich DePiro uh, worked on this game show we did on ABC for two seasons. And uh, I'm just, I love chatting up veterans of the game, right? I love having conversations like this. Yeah. That's why I first wanted to do the show in the first place. And I'm on set. I'm in the control room. He starts talking to me about like how he just, his whole life was obsessed with The Price is Right. Yep. It's all he ever wanted to do his whole life was direct the price is right yep. and this is why i bring up the story he told me this anecdote of when he was in college he would do this game where people would gather into his dorm room because the price is right would come on tv and he would direct the cameras yes. he'd say give me the four shot of the contestants back to bob okay back to one single on the contestant back to the wheel back to bob right. and he could do it Yep. In tune, on time with the actual live broadcast, he knew all the cuts from the director's chair 
as a 19, 20-year-old in college. And then Rich would later grow up to become the director of The Price is Right. Yes. And I just always loved that party trick. He grew up back east also. And when he came out to L.A., I think one of the first people he called was me. He tracked me down. And he said, you know, I've always wanted to meet you. And I, you know, I'm, I'm in, in awe of your career accomplishments. And I just wanted to introduce myself. And, and we went to lunch at uh, the Hard Rock Cafe, which isn't there anymore, in the Beverly Center. And uh, he still talks about that. He said that not only was that a life-changing moment for him and that he hadn't had a hamburger in so long because he was a poor kid who just came out here with nothing but just to talk with someone in the business about game shows and right. just to feel that he was starting to get connected to that it meant a lot to him and uh, he's he's a very good friend of mine to this day i see i didn't I, even know that i love that man yeah he's a good man we talked about this before one time at lunch i asked you what is the most perfect game show ever created and your yeah. answer was the price is right okay why yeah why is the price is right the perfect format because uh, Many reasons. The Price is Right uh, is way more than just a game show. The Price is Right is an entertainment experience. It's as much a variety show as it is a game show. And although all of the variety elements are games, you as a viewer never know what today's episode is going to be. Mm. It's not like other game shows where you know on Jeopardy there's going to be two boards with 30 questions and answers on each, and then you're going to have final Jeopardy, and you can predict it. Um, every day for going on 35 years now. The Price is Right every single day, and it's been on now, it's in its 46th season um, in its current version. Uh, every day you're going to play new games, and there's over 70 games that they play. The Price is Right is also exciting because it is the ultimate dream come true, wish fulfillment type of show. They're, the contestants on that show are literally picked from the audience on the day of the taping. They stand outside for hours. The producers and the, and the contestant staff go up and down the line and meet everyone and talk to them for all of about 10 seconds. Mm. And if there's a spark, if they believe that there's something in that person that will make them great television, they're on the show. Mm. They don't go through a massive contestant search um, and they're not airbrushed, and they're not perfect. They're real people who literally come off the street and get their fame and maybe fortune um, on The Price is Right. How many, from your knowledge, I'm sure you've talked to many people that have worked on that. Did you ever work on that show? I was the first student intern on The Price is Right. Come on. And I'll tell you that story. Um, I was in college. I was looking for an internship. I wanted to work on a game show. And I called around and called around, and... Um, internships were sort of a new thing at that time. So I had learned the name of the producer of The Price is Right, uh, Roger Dobkowitz, who's still a friend, um, from a TV Guide article. And I called over to Goodson Todman Productions. I asked for Roger, and he got on the phone. And I said, hi, I'm a huge fan of your show. I love your work. I'd love to be an intern. And he said, what's that? And I said, I work for you for free. I get college credit. And he says, oh, well, that sounds interesting. You created the Price is Right internship program. I did. I did. So Roger sent me to Frank Wayne. <laughs> Frank Wayne was the executive producer at the time and uh, a, a stalwart in, in game shows. 
uh, going back to the 50s. So I called his office at Roger's suggestion. I spoke to his assistant, and I said, I'd love to be an intern. She said, what's that? And I went through the whole explanation. She said, "Uh, well, I'll mention that to Frank, and I'll get back to you. And I said, would you mind if I called you from time to time just to see if this is possible? She said, sure, go ahead. So I called her every week for the next six months. Okay. It took that long. Yes. And then finally, every week she was super kind. Cheryl Paris, lovely lady, super kind. And she was like, I get it. I talked to him. He's thinking about it. He's really busy right now. She gave me all of the excuses you could give, but did it in a nice way and encouraged me to keep calling. Finally, six months later, I call her and I said, hi, it's Bob. It's my weekly call. She said, hold on. And Frank Wayne gets on the phone. He says, listen, kid, I don't know who you are. I don't know what this internship thing is that you want. (laughs) But if I give this to you, will you stop bugging me? And I said, yes. He said, you start next week. I mean, I want to cry. That was it. I want to cry. Listen to that story. That's amazing. I I mean, it's a lesson. And I tell my my students this now. I'm teaching college kids. Oh, I was going to bring it there. So I'm I'm so glad you brought that up. You work as an adjunct professor. Yes, I do. Syracuse University. And I was going to say, that never happens today. A, you just being able to call to try to get an internship doesn't happen. Because there's a long line of competitiveness to get those internships. But then for someone as a 19, 20-year-old calling every week and to be that consistent – and that vigilant for six months, that just doesn't happen anymore, Bob. I, I wow. knew I wouldn't get it if I didn't call. So wow. I'll call. The worst thing that will happen is they'll say, stop bothering us. So I called. Right, so before, before we get off prices, Right, I just want to make sure I ask you this question. What are your thoughts on the wall? The wall? I love the wall. Okay. Um, the wall is a very well-crafted show. Uh, yes, it is derivative and of? and of the Plinko game on the Price is Right. Exactly. And anybody who says it isn't uh, hasn't been in this country very long. Um, so, yes, it is a blown-up version of Plinko. Um, that said, the way they blew it up and the way they made it a dramatic spectacle um, is just spectacular. Uh, the, the scale of it, the excitement, the way it's shot uh, – the emotion that comes from the contestants as you're seeing their lives change, both for the better and for the worse. Yeah. Uh, I was actually involved in the very early development of that show uh, with Andrew Glassman. Yeah. Uh, and, and he brought me in and he showed me a computer program, which was essentially balls falling down a, a series of pegs into slots. And he said, you know, I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about that. And I, I sort of helped him shape it. And then I left, and then it was a good two years in development before it got any. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. It was uh, originally it was for Fox, and then it it uh, became uh, an NBC property, and then um, when and then uh, they attached LeBron when James. LeBron James got involved, then all of a sudden it was a show. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, so if you had to borrow, yes, if you had to borrow, yeah, another game from Price Is Right to. B- Use as the premise for an entire game show. What else would it be? And don't say the wheel because that's already happening. No, 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 no. And that's, I think the yeah. wheel's already happened. If yes. you want to understand, spin yeah. the wheel. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, well, uh, I'm very partial to the cliffhangers game, uh, uh, which Drew Carey calls the yodely guy. The yodel- I was, was yeah, going to say the, the one with the yodeler. Yes. Yeah. All you need is Kevin Durant to help you sell it. Apparently. Yeah. That's right. uh, how did you meet Lucille Ball? Um, I went to. Uh, a taping of uh, a live daytime uh, television show at UCLA when I was a student. 
It was called America Alive. Nobody remembers it. It was only on for less than a year, I think, uh, on NBC. Uh, Woody Fraser was the executive producer, and I worked with Woody later on. Um, And this episode for the show was based in New York, but they came out to L.A. for one episode, which featured Lucille Ball sitting on a bare stage in a director's chair answering questions from theater arts students at UCLA. Oh, so it's like um, inside the actor's studio. Very much so. Okay. So there's Lucy on the stage. I mean, she was a comedy icon. I think what, where is Lucy at this point? Is she like chain smoking Lucy? Yeah. Yeah. She was, she was towards the end of her career. Okay. So she had peaked her, 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 the best days of her career were behind her. But she was still a comedy icon. Oh, of course. No, I'm, I'm a giant and, Lucy fan. That's yeah. why I wanted to get this in. So just to be in the same room with her was a spectacular thrill for me. And there she is on stage. And I raised my hand to ask her a question. They didn't pre-screen the questions. We're on live television. Today, you would never do that. You would no. never risk no. that, especially college students. Yeah. So I raised my hand. Uh, Jack Linkletter, the host, came up to me and he said, what's your question, son? And I I said, uh, I asked Lucy about why she had never chosen to do a variety show, why she had only done sitcoms. Of course she did. And she gave me a very um, honest uh, answer that, that, uh, you know, she she doesn't really like to, you know, sing and dance just for the heck of it. She wants to have a story and and all of the types of shows she's done more suited to her. And then for whatever reason, she went off in a different direction and she said, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, come on. I no, I, I, I post this tape on my Facebook page. So here I am being grilled by Lucille Ball on live television on NBC about what my career ambitions are. I'm like, I wasn't prepared for this. And I said, literally, I said, well, anything I can get. <laughs> and she said, well, you better not say anything you can get because someone's going to hand you a broom. So you better learn something. So here, Lucille Ball is lecturing me on live TV. Incredible. So after the show, a white-haired gentleman named Barney McNulty came up to me, and he was holding a cue card. And it turns out he was Lucille Ball's personal cue card person, as well as Bob Hopes and all of the classic comedy stars. Barney invented cue cards in 1952. You met the original cue card guy? The man who invented cue cards. He was originally a CBS page, and Ed Wynn's show. He was working on Ed Wynn's show. Wait, hold on, Bob. They didn't yeah. have cue cards on the Honeymooners? They might have, but that was after this. This was this was 52. This was okay. very early. Like Colgate Comedy Hour? Yeah. Like, like super Ed Wynn's early. variety Texaco, show. Texaco Theater? Texaco Theater, yes. Okay. He was Milton Berle's personal okay. cue card guy, too. Wow. So Barney's there doing his job, and he came up to me after the show, and he said, uh, I liked your question, son. And I said, oh, well, thank you. He says, can I have your phone number? And I'm like, why is this man asking me for my phone number? There were no emails back then. So I gave him my phone number, and he said, thanks, and he walked away. I'm like, what's going on here? I had no idea what this was about. So I went backstage after the show, and I found him. I tracked him down. I said, could you just tell me what this is about? And he says, I liked your question, and I've got a job for you. And... It was. It started the next day. This was a Friday. It started Saturday. He was doing the cue cards for a George Burns special at Television City, wow. which turns out to be my favorite building in the entire universe, where they do the prices right on the same stage. Okay. Okay. This is on so, Beverly. Uh, Beverly Boulevard yeah. and and uh, Fairfax. 
Stage 33, now called the Bob Barker Studio. Wow. So uh, I said, okay. I can. He said, can you make it to CBS tomorrow around 10 o'clock? I said, yeah, I think I can make it. So George Burns special. George Burns special. So who are the heavy hitters that are appearing um, on the special? Uh, I got to meet that first day uh, Bob Hope, uh, Milton Berle, Jimmy Stewart, um, Don Rickles, who was another childhood idol of mine. Um, I saw him in Vegas a few years ago. Oh, really? I had to. Yeah, I had to yeah. see Don while I still could. I, yeah, me too. Actually, I saw him over here at the at the uh, Saban Theater. He did a thing. Amazing. Um, Steve Martin, Helen Reddy. Steve Martin? Uh, yeah. Uh, Andy Gibb. I mean, it was this star-studded salute to George Burns' 100th birthday, which it wasn't. It was his 86th birthday, <laughs> but they were afraid he wouldn't be around for his 100th birthday. And the punchline of that story is he made it to 100. Yeah. But it was his 86th birthday, but they said, you know, we want to do his 100th birthday special now while he's still around. And it was just this star-studded thing. And I'm standing there in the middle of Television City, and I knew it was the Price is Right stage because I had tried out for the Price is Right eight times and never got chosen. So I knew that stage. And I'm there, and Barney, my boss, sends me into the dressing room with Milton Berle to go over the cue cards with him. It's like I don't even know how to hold these things. How did they treat you? Um, couldn't have been nicer. The, the only I mean, Uncle Milty is kind of known to. He was he was a little uh, acerbic, right? Um, but I, I'm in the dressing room with Milton Berle. I, I mean, don't I, care how he treats I me. Mean, I mean, a day a day earlier, you were just a, a face in the crowd asking yeah. Lucille Ball a yeah. question, and a day later, you're in these private dressing rooms yeah. with icons. And the, the best story was Don Rickles, who had been a childhood idol. And he was coming down the hallway into the studio, and I walked up to him, and I said, Mr. Rickles, I just want to tell you what a huge fan I am of yours. I grew up in Flushing, Queens, and I admire you so much. And he says, who cares, kid, and walked by me. And I thought, I didn't think that moment, but later on I realized I have joined an elusive club of people who were insulted personally by Don Rickles. Now, was, was he doing it because that he really didn't care? I or, think so. Or was he doing it because he wanted to give you the story? Uh, I think I think he didn't care. <laughs> I think he didn't care. And I'm going to stick with that. He's gone now. Um, but, again, it didn't matter to me. I'm in the presence of this greatness. Oh, and I'm learning a craft that is going to uh, allow me access to all of this, these legends. Did that lead to more work? Yes. Um, I, I continued to work for Barney through college, part-time. Um, I flipped and printed cue cards for Days of Our Lives for several years. Um, I did all of the Bob Hope specials. Wow. Um, I worked did on... Did you ever meet Groucho? Uh, I don't believe I met Groucho, no. Um, most of the top talent I met was on the Bob Hope shows when I was doing the cards. Okay. And... You know, meet is a strange word sure, because sure, sure, working sure. with and meeting them are not yeah, always. Yeah, sometimes you're just in a room together. I'm, yeah. I'm there, but, yeah. you know, even five minutes later, they wouldn't remember me. Sure. No, and, I know that. And they don't need to. I mean, that's how I treat yeah. my production assistants. <laughs> Remind me not to work for you. I'll brought, I brought, I brought uh, with you. Uh, so, yeah, I met, uh, I, I worked with uh, a lot of the classic legends of television on the Bob Hope shows. And I did parades. I did commercials. I did what? sitcoms. It was amazing. What was your first regular gig on a game show? I'm, I'm still in college. And I thought, uh, if you thought my Price is Right story was weird, you'll love this one. So I'm in college and I want to meet Fred Silverman. 
okay, sure. who was at the time head of programming for NBC. He's like the Ted Sarandos. He had covered all of the three broadcast networks at the time as head of programming. Right. But he started in daytime. Hmm. So he knew his game shows. Hmm. That's, where, that's where his career was in the beginning. So I wanted to meet him. So uh, I was working on shows at NBC, and I learned that they had an affiliates meeting every year where they would gather all the affiliate right. station managers would come to L.A. for parties and lectures and events and, and all of these programs. And so I found out when Fred Silverman was giving a keynote address, and I showed up. Okay, I was a cue card guy. Yeah. So I put on a suit and I crashed. Did you, did you have to borrow the suit? Uh, no, I, I think it was the bar mitzvah suit. I think I, <laughs> I think it still fit me. Bar mitzvah yeah, suit yeah. still fit you in college? Probably. Well, I, I was thin back then. Uh, I'm getting back there. So I show up and I wait outside the door and I knew when his speech was going to end. And I had with me uh, a paper that I had written for school on the history of game shows. It was a, it was a, a final thesis. So I had that, and Fred Silverman comes out of the room, and he's bombarded by people. And I walk right up to him, and I said, Mr. Silverman, my name is Bob. I'm a student at UCLA. I'm really interested in game shows. I wrote a thesis, and here it is. And he looked at me like, why are you doing this to me? Like, why are you handing me this thing? So um, he said, send it to my office, please. He was polite, mm-hmm. but didn't mm-hmm. really want to talk to sure. me. So um, a, a couple days later, I mailed it to his office in New York. And he wrote back and thanked me for it. And then I get a letter from Earl Greenberg, who was the head of daytime at NBC. Amazing. And he had sent four letters to executive producers of four daytime pilots that NBC was about to do and said, um, this, this college student was recommended by Fred Silverman <laughs> to work on your show. If you have a chance to interview him, please do. Oh, my gosh. And one of the four producers hired me on a pilot. Uh, and, uh, that led to other opportunities as a PA and, and, you know, ultimately, you know, higher level things. Um, and then I took a turn and when I got out of college, uh, my first, my entry level job was as a research analyst because hmm. I had also done an internship at CBS and I won't bore you with how I got that, but it's another one of those stories. It's another one of calling, calling every week. Stories. Yes. Yeah. So I had a tiny little background in, in ratings analysis and I saw a job on the placement board at UCLA for a research analyst at Paramount Studios. I went in and I had no qualifications for this job, but there was something in me that my boss, Gary Hart, who I adore, he's now head of uh, the film department at Cal State Fullerton, okay. um, sweet man. And there was something in me that he just said, okay, fine. And so he gave me a homework assignment. He gave me uh, a ratings book. It was about oh, 150 pages uh, long, and it was all numbers. It was just like it was an analysis. Uh, it wasn't an analysis. It was a report on the ratings for the Brady Bunch from the previous sweeps period. Okay. And he said, I want you to do an analysis on these, this book and uh, have it by next week and tell me why, if I'm a station manager, I should put the Brady Bunch on my station. I'm like, okay. Oh, my God. I'm like, I have no that idea. Like homework. I have no idea how to do this. But I just went through the book. And I threw in, you know, some little Brady Bunchisms in there right. because I didn't know enough about how to do a, a, a professional uh, report. But I figured he'd get a laugh out of, you know, Marsha, 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 stuff right. like that. So I brought in this report, and he said, 
he got a lot to learn. He's like, who's George Glass? (laughs) (laughs) He said, you got a lot to learn, but I'm going to give you a shot. And he hired me as a research analyst, and I was there for a year. And then I uh, got a call from the gentleman I'd interned for at CBS in the research department. He said, I'm leaving CBS to go work for Lucille Ball. Okay? (laughs) There's another coincidence. And nobody else has ever worked in this department except me and you. (laughs) And so if you want, you can come in and meet with my boss. And if he likes you, you can replace me. I'm like... As the head of research at CBS? Not head of research. It was the manager of research. Manager of research at CBS. CBS Television City. So my job there was to deliver the ratings every morning to all the executives on the third floor of TV City. Uh, 24. Okay. 24. Okay. Um, and I'll never forget, it was it was the, the morning after the MASH finale. Wow. Okay? Which, which has which always been stated as the highest a, rated a, episode. A 60.2 rating and a 77 share. A 77, 77 share. share. So I'm carrying this stack of papers and I go to every desk and I drop off the, 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 the packet on the, on the secretary's desks. And they all say, thank you, thank you. Well, that morning when I dropped it off, everyone had a look at it because they wanted to know how MASH did. And desk by desk, everyone was like, oh, my God. Do you see that? I said, yeah, I saw it. I'm how much? Okay, so 70, per, a 77% share, for people who don't know, means 77% of all the televisions that were turned on that night were watching MASH. That's right. How much greater was that than any given episode of MASH that final season? Oh, well, the rule is there's 100% to share. So if you get any less than a third, you're not a success. Okay? Because yeah, there's right. only no, right. a divisor but three. Totally. So a successful show, and probably in that last season, would be like, 50% would would be like 45. Yeah, yeah, like a really big hit show would get about 50%. That's incredible. So, but I don't think they even got anywhere near that. But then the finale was, you know, a big event. So when you're the research guy or the research kid and you're handing out great numbers, people tend to like you because right. you're the deliverer of good news. <laughs> so I was like people couldn't wait to see me every morning thinking that it would be the next mash. It was never again. But it was, it was such a meaningless operation, and yet it was important to my development and growth as an executive yeah. is I got to network at the network with the people who made decisions. Uh, and that ultimately led to me getting chosen uh, to uh, be in a, in a very unique program that doesn't exist anymore called the Management Trainee Program. There were three of us. And I spent a year getting paid to learn everything you could possibly learn about network television. There are executives who are presidents of networks now who don't know what the graduates of this program got to learn because right. we learned everything. Um, so flash forward, you, you get into that department. Yes. What, what shows you overseeing now? Um, the first show. And you're like 26. I'm 26, right. And you're a CBS executive a CBS assigned ex- to the game shows. This That's is a dream right. come true by it 26. Is. It is. What shows are um, on the roster at that point? I did, uh, I did a lot of observation for the first few months, and then the first show they gave me was Press Your Luck. Okay, which is now a classic show. Right. And um, the producer of that show was a very difficult guy, Bill Carruthers. He's long gone, but um, he was just, he was a curmudgeon. He was, he was uh, n- not a happy fellow. Um, a great producer. 
awesome off-the-charts producer and director. He produced and directed the show. But he didn't want some 26-year-old network kid coming into his control room and telling him how to do his show. Yeah, those early days must be tough. Yeah. So it's the difficult people you learn from, you you work with. It's the difficult people you work with who teach you the most. Mm. And so working with Bill Carruthers and later with Woody Fraser and and several other difficult producers, I learned so much about how to manage, how to manage not only um, creative people, but how to manage difficult personalities and how to manage upward, okay? Because he's the executive producer of the show. He could call my boss in a heartbeat and say, get this kid out of my booth. I can't stand him. Right. And I think despite him being a curmudgeon and being, you know, whatever he was, I think he saw the sparkle in my eye that I loved this. And I think he knew the suggestions I made were coming from my heart, not from being a suit and not from where most executives come from, which is I'm important. You have to do what I tell you, and I don't want to hear you talk back to me. I came from, hey, wouldn't the show be more fun if you tried this? And, of course, he would say, no, up front, go away. But then he'd think about it, and after he made it his own, he would come back to me and says, I'm going to try that thing you said. A little inception there. Yeah. Never a thank you, but I don't need a thank you. I knew that, that my passion was having an influence on, on what was on CBS. Oh, my God. How did you end up at Dick Clark? <clears throat> uh, Dick, the Dick Clark story is, is a, a fairy tale for me, a wonderful fairy tale. Um, I was next assigned the $25,000 pyramid as okay. my show. Okay, okay, so here I go from New York running down the street after Dick Clark to get his autograph right. to being the CBS exec on Pyramid. Okay, wow. pinch me. I mean, and Dick I, Clark Productions did they no, produce it, it? Bob Stewart Productions. Who uh, Bob Stewart? I have to talk about Bob Stewart just for a second. Bob Stewart, uh, next to Mark Goodson, is probably the most creative. He's gone now, sadly. The most creative, the most intuitive man in the history of game show formats. He, what, he created. Give, give us the roster. He created. Here's four for you. The Price Is Right, to tell the truth, twenty five thousand dollar pyramid, and password. Wow. Okay. That's strong. Now you could say that pyramid was a derivative of password. Mm. I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm sure he would be okay with that. Yeah. Sure. Um, what a good pa- password good- and. Pyramid, um, all of them but Pyramid, he created while he was working for Mark Goodson. And then he went out oh. on his own. He went out on his own in 66. I don't know the exact date. And he created his own shop and created Pyramid and a lot of other shows. None of them will ever have the the uh, the weight in the industry as Pyramid did. Who created the other big hitters? Who created <clears throat> Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy? Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy was Merv Griffin. And he um, created them? He created them, yes. The Merv story- Griffin, who's an, a celebrity host, actually created those shows? Yes. The, the story about Jeopardy, it, it's, it's legendary now, but Merv Griffin, who was married at the time to a lady named Julian, the story goes, and it's, it's, it's pretty well-established legend, so I buy it. Okay. I don't know if it's true, but I buy it. Um, he was on an airplane with his wife flying somewhere. This was just after the quiz show scandals had come and gone and had virtually destroyed the industry. Okay? Quiz shows were the lowest life form because they had been found to be uh, dishonest. Mm. So he and his wife are on this plane, and she says, I've got an idea. Since everybody got in trouble for giving the contestants the answers, mm-hmm. 
Why don't we create a show where we give the contestants the answers and they have to come up with the questions? Genius. And he came up with the example of 5,280 feet. What is a mile? That was the first example of what Jeopardy became. And he piloted it for NBC. It was called uh, That's the Question. Or What's the Question? What's the Question? And um, they weren't interested at first. Then he changed the name to Jeopardy. And it was born. And you're somehow connected to Jeopardy lore. Very uh, peripherally. You did a a rehearsal? I did a rehearsal. In in 84, um, they were bringing Jeopardy back. And I knew a couple of the producers, and uh, I said, is there any way I could be a part of this? I wanted to be on staff, but there was no staff position available. So they said, you can come and be a contestant on the, uh, the run-through for the pilot. Now, the first Jeopardy! pilot was in the style of the original show from NBC in the 70s, 60s and 70s, which had flip cards that they would pull from a board, manual. There would be right. guys behind a board pulling out a card. So they knew that Jeopardy needed to be updated, and they did a pilot, still with the flip cards, but the set was a little more space age, and it was uh, Alex Trebek. Uh, he was new at this. He had uh, done a lot, a lot of game shows, and this was in the days when game shows were hosted by game show hosts. Right. I want to talk to you about that in a second. Yeah. yeah. So um, Alex is, is learning Jeopardy. And so you were there uh, as Alex Trebek is learning yes. the format of the show that he would go on to host for decades. Yes. <laughs> and so I am there as a contestant. I didn't do terribly well on this tape. That's this is on my Facebook page also. Yeah. Um, but there was a rehearsal for the rehearsal. And I remember he came to me as a con- as the host to a contestant and he asked me to reveal my wager uh, before the question that I had written. And I said, no, Alex, you have to do the question first and then the wager. That's, that's how it works. And he was like, why? I said, well, because that's, that's how it works. That's how it was done on the original show. So here I am, this smart-ass kid, and I'm telling Alex Trebek the order that he has to do Final Jeopardy. Well, he took it graciously, and he learned, and he's done okay for himself. I, one of the subjects I want to talk to you about was – the death of the game show host. Yes. Because I grew up in an era watching shows in the 80s and 90s where you just had those faces, those faces that popped up, Chuck Willerys of the world. Right. You know, people like that. Bill Cullen. You just kind of knew these were like the game guys. And yes. there was a whole segment of, of these hosts out there that that's just the people that got those jobs. And that, that's what you did. Right. You didn't have all, the, all these other side gigs. You weren't also a radio DJ. You weren't right. also, you know, whatever, a reality TV star. This is all you did. And you had agents. All they did was build massive yes. agencies and management companies just representing hosts. Yes. I always talk about now, hosts are gone. People yeah. that specifically just host things don't exist anymore. It's right. very, very rare. Yes. And now it, it broadcast television landscape, you know, we have the Jamie Foxes of the world, Steve Harvey, Michael Strahan, Fergie, uh, Alec Baldwin, uh, Mike Myers is hosting a game show now, the, the reboot of The Gong Show. As a character. and As a character. And no. you have a whole group of agents now yes. that don't have a business anymore. Right. Because all of their kind of correspondent-y, host-y type people can't get work anymore. Yeah. Because not just game shows, if you look at the cable landscape, people don't want hosted shows anymore. You, you, I talk to cable networks and or a host is like a bad word. 
Yeah. You know, because now they want cable, the cable landscape are shows where people are doing things they'd be doing whether the cameras are there or not. There aren't a lot of hosted formats anymore Correct. with the exception of travel shows. That's, right. that's it. Um, now looking at the landscape where it's mega celebrities being put into a, a game show host role, does that irk you in any way as, as a game show historian that you are? Um, no, actually, I think it's the best thing that could happen to the game show world. Um, if you go back in time, game shows, many game shows uh, in the origins of television were hosted by celebrities. Dick Van Dyke hosted a game show. Carl Reiner hosted a game show. Groucho Marx, yeah. one of his most famous jobs you was hosting your You Bet Your Life. You worked with Norman Lear, uh, who hosted uh, the show. Norman Lear hosted a show later on in his career. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it was par for the course to hire a celebrity if they were available and interested and a good fit for the show. But Aren't you surprised Gleason never hosted one? Gleason did host. He did. What did he host? Gleason hosted. Uh, this is Jackie a, Gleason. Jackie Gleason hosted a, uh, a show called You're in the Picture. Huh. It was. Oh, a, I feel a, like I've heard of this. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a legendary story. It was a CBS primetime show. And the premise was that uh, people would put their faces through holes in a large It was like hole in a wall, but like the reverse yeah. of it. Yeah. And y- y- the contestants would have to guess. The contestants right. whose faces were there would have to guess what the picture <laughs> what the was. picture was. So it's like, it's like that party game you play sometimes where you have a, a celebrity name on your forehead. Yes. Right? Headbands. It's like heads up. Yeah. It's like a up. big version of heads up. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's kind of genius. So – uh, kind of genius, but not a good television show. Right. So what happened is they did the first show. I bet Gleason wasn't a great host. He, um, I don't know what prompted him to do it. You have a warmth. You need to have a warmth. Yes. Right? So he was not a good fit for the show. And clearly he didn't want to do it. And you could tell as there no. was only one episode of the show. And you could tell in the middle of it, he kind of checked out. Like, right. I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't like this. So after that one episode aired, yeah. he talked to the network and he said, I don't want to do this anymore. And he convinced them to allow him to come on the following week in the same time period and apologize for the entire half hour for having oh, taken I've on. Oh, I've seen this actually. Yes. Did you post this once? I, I didn't post it, but I, I have I, it. It's I, out there now. I've actually seen this where he came on yeah. and apologized to the audience yeah. for how bad the show was. Yes. Or how bad at least he thought the show was. Yes. And, and he was sort of right. Um, so (laughs) that's incredible. Yeah. So a lot of celebrities did host game shows. So this is part of the, the origin story of game shows is that not hosty career hosts because that wasn't a thing. It was a new medium. Yeah. So they had to pull the biggest celebrities. That was where a lot of it started that way, but they're also, because there were so many game shows and not enough stars to go around. In the eighties and nineties. No, even go, go back fifties and sixties. I'm talking in the beginning of the industry. Um, a lot of people became professional hosts. Right. They were typically uh, DJs who, right. you know, had, had a, the experience in radio, knew how to keep a conversation going, knew how right. to engage the public. Well, it's what Carson Daly and Ryan Seacrest were. Absolutely. And today, in the current landscape, let's say American Idol was a new show, a, Ryan, a 20-something-year-old Ryan Seacrest uh, DJ doesn't no. get that job. He wouldn't. It would it, be a celebrity. It goes to Fergie or yeah. Kelly Clarkson or, or whoever. Right. Right? Yes. And so, you know, the, the, the Bill Cullens of the world, the Wink Martindales, the Bob Eubanks, the Tom Kennedy, those, those types of people created an industry of game show hosts, which created agents. And when I was first starting in, the, in the, this world, 
there was one prominent game show host agent who we would call Dean Craig. Yeah. And it was like, hey, we're doing a new show. New show. Who you got? Right. Well, you want Dennis James or you want Monty or you want Wink or Monty. you want Bill Cullen? That's all there was. And those were our that was our menu of choices. Yeah. We never thought about a celebrity. We didn't think a celebrity would want to do it. Now it's like bring the Oscar winning actor Jamie Foxx. Yes. And then yes. you have a show. Yes. Okay, quick question for you. Yes. What big time celebrity has yet to host a game show that you think would be awesome at it? Um I have two. <laughs> I have two. You know, I don't think he would ever do it. But I would love to see George Clooney do it. Oh, uh, that's God. That's really good. Because that's he, really good. he is a really down-to-earth guy. He's got warmth to him. He's got warmth. He's very, very smart. Very smart. Intellectual. So you yes. buy him. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't see him doing Jeopardy. Have you seen his box but, office lately? Uh, yeah. He might not be far away. Yeah. Well, maybe. He might not be far away. Maybe. Uh, I, I've never met him, but his father was a game show host, Nick Clooney. That's right. Nick Clooney hosted The Money Maze on ABC, which was a show that I used to go see. It was still in New York when I was in high school, mm. and it was, it was only on for six months, but it was a show that I would go see regularly. Uh, it was created by Don Lip and Ron Greenberg. Ron Greenberg just celebrated his 87th birthday, sweetest man. And uh, it was this enormous garage, literally a garage at ABC in New York on 66th Street. They transformed into the set for this game show where they built a maze. And in order to win the money, the contestants had to direct their partner through this maze to hit a button. And if they did that within the time, they would win the prize. George so, Clooney's dad. George Clooney's dad, Nick so Clooney. So you think Clooney – by the way, it's a, it's a hypothetical, so you can give any answer you want. You're totally right. George Clooney would and, be an amazing host. And apparently George Clooney would hang out backstage with his dad. Of course. At this show. So I have two. Yes. My, they're not that – was, that was an amazing answer. I, I can't top that. But these are actual like I think it could happen. Uh-huh. It, could, it could happen in the next five years maybe. Jim Parsons. Jim Parsons would be great. And how about Andy Samberg? Oh, he'd be great too. He, he's, Good, right? Yes, absolutely. He's done, he's done the Emmys. Um, Jim Parsons, you know, because he's he's uh, plays an intellectual character and right. does it so well. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine he would ever consider wanting to do Jeopardy. But mm. at some point, that's going to happen. There will need to be a replacement for Alex, and uh, uh, he'd be great. I mean, I don't think anyone could afford him. But but. The, the great thing about most game shows is that it doesn't require a lot of time. Right. As a performer, you only have to come in. I mean, Jeopardy tapes four days a month and not even all year long. It's the greatest job in the world, right? It is a great job. A great job. Uh, I have some more things I want to go yes, through. Yes, go. Can I tell you one of, my, one of the things I love most about certain game shows? Sure. I love game shows with mythology and characters in them. Okay. Okay. So, for example, when I was a kid growing up, Carmen Sandiego, where in the world yes. is Carmen Sandiego, had mm-hmm. a character at the center and a mythology to the show. Yes. Uh, the Whammies, yes. Press Your Luck. Yes. They had characters built in there. I was thinking the other day about The Banker mm-hmm. in Deal or No Deal. Right. And I was thinking if you're doing that in 2018, how silly is it to think that Harry Mandel would get a phone call from a fictitious, shadowy <laughs> banker who's just chilling up there for some reason up in, up in the, uh, the rafters? Yeah. Would that work today? Would that be cheesy? 
Well, it's could coming that, back. Could that still be the device? Because uh, now they'll have the celebrity banker and they'll probably reveal it at the end of every episode. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, everything old is new again, not just in game shows, but in primetime television. If you look at CBS's lineup, it's yeah. the same as it was 22 years ago. You know, I mean, you know, there's a lot of revivals coming around. Well, this, well, this comes so, back. That's yeah. my next question. So, so another thing I loved with it implemented characters and mythology, remote control on MTV. Yes. Great show. Right. The premise and the, the mythology was that took place <clears throat> in the host's mom's basement. Right. And characters like Adam Sandler would play a character. Colin Quinn would come through. Right. They would play characters. This answers my next question. Okay. So this is my answer. Yeah. I think Remote Control is the one show that has not been rebooted mm-hmm. that should be. Yes. What is yours? What is the one game show that has <clears throat> yet to be rebooted that you would like to see come back? Uh, well, the, the, the show I loved the most that I was able to bring back, but I'd love it to come back again, was Press Your Luck. Okay. And that's been brought back before. Though. It was. I brought it back. Yeah. When, when I was at Game Show Network, the first show that I wanted to bring on the air was was Whammy, which was a remake of Press Your Luck. But Press Your Luck has never been in prime time, ever. Huh. It, you know, all the old daytime shows that have come back have moved from daytime to prime time. Match Game and Pyramid and right. the Gong Show to tell the truth. Right. Some of them had brief prime time runs earlier, but they were primarily daytime shows. That was where game shows that was the breeding ground for game shows was daytime um when millionaire came back on in 99 it was the first real primetime series game show in 40 years because the scandals had so ruined the industry Mm. that no broadcaster was going to trust that a game show could work in primetime right and it was michael davies who put his butt on the line his career on the line at abc to say I'm going to revive the primetime game right. show, and that led to the weakest link, that and led to Deal or No Deal, and it led to Greed, which was the 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 only show that I've created for primetime. So and tell me about that. That led me back to Dick Clark. How did Greed come about? This is this is your one created by credit. Although you've created many many games behind the scenes, yes, and you've played a part in many many shows being developed and created, yeah. But this is your lone creator credit. I didn't actually get a screen credit, but. Okay. But I got a, I got something better, which is I got to share an executive producer card with Dick Clark. Okay, the man you who really, I, you really you really get emotional when, when uh, Dick Clark's I, name is mentioned. I, the man who I chased down the street. I mean, um, towards the end of my association with him, when he you know he got sick, um, he was almost paternal to me. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a very special bond, and I can't explain it. But he saw something in me that. He could be a tough guy. I mean, the the legend of working for Dick Clark was not rosy. And when I eventually said I'm going to go work for him, people said, be careful. You know, he could be mean. He could be cheap. I saw nothing of that. I saw the most genuine, dedicated, um, loving man yeah. who almost adopted me as his kid. I mean, he was just so kind to me. And he just he just got me. He understood what I was about, and he knew that I would never tarnish his image. What did you learn most from him? <clears throat> um, I learned about efficiency from Dick. Mm. There was no producer ever who was more concerned with being on time and being under budget and getting the show done. Mm. And that came largely from his experiences in live television, Bandstand, and then later on the award shows. And the award shows have to get off at 11 o'clock. There's no two ways about it. He did a lot of live. A lot of live. 
And every award show that I attended that he produced, he would come on the, on the uh, PA during the show and tell the audience, hey, we're a minute and 10 seconds over. You've got you've to get, get that time back from me because we have to get off the air at 11 o'clock. Mm. And that was more effective than any device ever created to get people to make their speeches shorter mm. because it was Dick Clark, the American icon, saying, hey, help me out here. We gotta, we gotta take a minute ten out of this show. Describe Dick in a room <clears throat> when you were pitching the networks. Um, legend. I mean, I mean, how easy was it for him back then to sell to sell a concept and a development? When Dick what, walked what, oh, in, this, this is a better yeah. question. You and Dick Clark walk. Did you? I assume you yeah, joined well, him on pitch meetings. Let me tell you the story of greed. Okay, it, tell me it, story it greed. leads what, to all that. I want to know what materials did you yeah. have? Yes. What was actually put in front of the executives in that pitch meeting? So. Um, August 18th, 1999, Millionaire comes on, okay? Right. And it changed the world. Um, on the first night, it did okay. The second night, it creeped up a little bit. The third night, it was looking like a hit. That third day, Dick Clark called me. Actually, his son, Rack Clark, called me on behalf of Dick. And he said, Dad thinks this show is going to be a monster, and he wants to get in now and pitch a competing show to go on another network because everybody's going to want to imitate this show. Can you come up with something? Smart. And I said, I think I can do that. Dick Clark calls for me? Yes. So this was a Wednesday. Where are you at the time? I was producing the first season of uh, the syndicated Family Feud with Louis Anderson, okay. and I was working with Michael Canner. Okay. You really have worked on every show. I pr- sort of. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We haven't talked about Family Feud, yeah. but yes, you've worked on every show. All right, so, so Dick so, Okay, so you. Dick calls me on Wednesday. Um, I set a meeting to come in on Friday, and now I'm tearing my hair out because I have two days to come up with a format that's going to please Dick Clark. (laughs) So I come up with a format called All for One. And what it was was a team version of Millionaires. So there were five players who all knew each other. And uh, the object of the game was to get all of them to agree on answers. And until they agreed on an answer, that answer wasn't registered. So it's 12 Angry Men. A little bit. And it's a little bit like what has since come and gone called Divided, which on was the game on show GSN. Network. Yeah. yeah. So it was about the dynamic of the people because I couldn't make it one person in a chair and a host. That was exactly millionaire. But I wanted to take that dramatic element and focus it on a team element. So... I brought that in, and it was Dick and Barry Edelman and Rack Clark. All well, the two of them are still good friends of mine. And I showed this thing, and uh, I had a PowerPoint, which I barely knew how to do PowerPoint in that at that time. But I showed it. Yeah, this is like ninety nine. Uh, yeah, no, it was it was ninety nine. Yeah. And I, I had a money ladder, and I had sample questions, and they said, "Hmm, interesting." And then Dick said, "I want to." I want to make it more uh, – I want a higher level of conflict because the conflict isn't strong enough. And he said, what if they're not coworkers and people who know each other? What if they're strangers who are thrown together, which was really smart. Really smart. And then we said the title is too soft. All for one, eh, who cares? Although it's a name yeah. of a great 90s R&B group. Yes. But Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was a great title. It popped. Yes. Okay. When you see that title, it's like, oh, I got to check this show out. Yep. So we needed well, a great title. In, in, the, in the words of my old boss, Ben Silverman, who was the agent involved in selling that, yes. his, his answer was, who doesn't? Right. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Right. Who doesn't? So he pumped me to come up with better titles. And then we sat in a room. I, brought, I came back in Monday. I made the changes he wanted. 
um, we met Monday morning and we, we were brainstorming titles and I said, you know, all I can think of is, is, and this has been the, the foundation of many game shows, but it's never been said, which is greed. And I didn't think of calling the show greed cause I wasn't that smart. And I said, well, what about the greedy team, the greedy bunch, the greedy group, the greedy this. And Dick said, <laughs> all those awful titles. Yeah. And Dick yeah. said, stop, just say greed. Yeah. There's nothing more impactful than the word greed. Yeah. Because that will get people to tune in. Yep. So it was him that came up with that. And he called up Rick Ludwin at NBC, who was in charge sure. of specials. Rick at Ludwin. The time. I got to know Rick when he was still uh, overseeing late night. Great guy. Great guy. Great guy. He was there over 30 years. Yeah. Just a really menschy guy. Yep. And we were across the street from NBC at the time Dick's company was. So he could call Rick anytime and say, hey, I'm coming over tomorrow. What time you got? So we came over to see Rick, and he listened, and he said, this is great. This is going to go on, but I can't buy it because NBC owns the rights to 21. And if we're going to do a big money game show, it's going to be the one we own. So he passed. Okay. Then Dick called Mike Darnell at Fox, who, again, if, if Dick calls, Mike sets time. Right. So he was still late, but he set a time. Mike so, Darnell was still late for Dick course, Clark, too? Yes. Um, so uh, Dick calls Mike Darnell's office, and they said, okay, come on in tomorrow. So this was right. Wednesday. This was one week from the day that Dick called me and said, I want you to create a game show for me. Right. And we come into Mike, and he literally— Who did the pitching? Dick did the, the initial pitch, but he didn't know the weeds of the show. Right. So he set he, it up. He, he threw it to me. Right, to go through the format. Right. And I'd never met Mike before. Right. Okay, so I'm in a room with Dick Clark and his top, his top lieutenants and Mike Darnell and, of course, his eight minions. Yeah. And I'm now pitching a primetime game show possibility to Fox. Is this your Can first I? pitch? Pretty much. Pretty much. Amazing. Yeah. Your fir- Wait, your first pitch is sold? Pretty much. Yeah. Well, Dick Clark sold it. Well, but a lot, I, could, I yes, couldn't have sold it. But a lot Dick had Clark. led. Yeah. A lot of roads had led to that pitch meeting for you. They knew who I was, and they knew that I'd worked on a lot of shows, and I'd been an executive. By that time, I'd been at ABC. I'd been at CBS. I'd, I'd done a had lot. Had you done of your stuff. first? In a, no, GSN didn't exist yet. GSN existed, and I had done my first tour of GSN. Right, and then but you would later. I came back. Come after back. That. And, yes. yes. We won't um, speak of that. Um, we can, but not warmly. Um, so uh, I. I'm pitching. I'm doing the heavy lifting of the pitch because I know the format. It's in my head. So uh, Mike literally jumps up and down. He says, I love this. I love this. I love this. I love this. You know how he can be. Yeah. Uh, now, many times when he says, I love this, I'm ne- buying this. You never hear from him again. You never hear from him again. This time he meant it. Yeah. He needed a game show. And he wanted one that could beat Millionaire. And you were straight out of the Mike Mike Darnell playbook where right. let's go make a competitive show right. as fast as we can to steal, right. steal the thunder from a contender. And, and Dick knew that playbook. Yeah. And so he knew if we came up with the right and show the for Mike. the title was yeah. a Fox title. A Fox title. Through and through. That You wouldn't call right. it greed at NBC. No. Yeah. So it was, a, it was the perfect storm. It was the best show at the best time for the right network. And Mike said, of course – there's not enough conflict in it. After we added the conflict of the strangers, he wanted more. And he wanted a head-to-head element in the show yeah. where people would risk the money they had to go head-to-head with one of their teammates right. to steal their money. But they have to turn on each other eventually right. if, it's a, if it's a Darnell show. Right. Yeah. So, and it probably made for a better show. We, it, it was a great show because yeah. of that. 
So we came up with an element we called the Terminator, which is at, at some point in the show, an alarm rings, and one contestant is randomly chosen to challenge one of their opponents. Okay. And we were afraid that they wouldn't do it okay. because people generally are nice people, and I'm not going to turn on my, on my teammate. So Mike said, give them money to bribe them to do it. So we did that, and first standards and practice said, you can't do that. You can't bribe people to tell them to go against one of their teammates. So we, uh, we did anyway, because <laughs> Mike does, gets what he wants. So we said, the Terminator has landed on you, Jimmy, and um, we'll give you $10,000 to take down one of your... Yeah, if it's part of the gameplay, your... you can yes. do that. Well, we did it, yeah. and it was the defining moment of that show. It's, wow. it's what made the show. So we go through the development phase. We have to now – and okay, so this is now August, okay? Yeah. Mike says, I want this show on the air before Millionaire comes back. Right. Millionaire had done a two-week test, went through the roof, yep. and they were going to bring it back for November sweeps, okay? Yeah, November. a lot of people forget that Millionaire launched as a strip. Right. Yeah. Every night of the week. And so they were bringing it back November 6th. Okay. And Mike said, I want to beat them on the air with this show. And we said... And that always okay. makes for the best show. Yes. <laughs> it, it makes people tear their hairs out, which is what it did. Oh, my god! So in, in the next few weeks, we build a set, cast the show, find a host, who is the write host? a script, Chuck Woolery. So we hired Chuck because we needed a guy who could come in and just do it. Right. You know, we talked about celebrities. We talked about, you know, talk show hosts, et cetera. But Chuck was the guy. So I'll get to the end of the story. Nine weeks from the day that we pitched the show to Mike, we were on the air. Oh, my gosh. That's unbelievable. Okay. Now, we did six half hours, okay, because Millionaire, most of the episodes were half hours in prime time. Mm. So Mike committed to six half hours. Okay. So three hours of content. We taped the six half hours, and then he says, this is amazing. I love this. I want to come out with a blast. We're going to premiere it as a two-hour special. We said, Mike. We only have three hours of material. Right. He said, don't worry. We'll do more. We're going to do more. This thing's going to be a monster hit. So the first night we air, we use up two-thirds of our inventory. We use four episodes. Four episodes out of the six to create this two-hour special. And it did really, really well. And we beat Millionaire. We didn't come anywhere near the mega success of Millionaire. Not even close. But for Fox to be competitive in that space was a big deal. How many seasons did Greed do? Greed only did 44 episodes. We were only on for nine months. Okay. There was a change in management at the top, and Gail Berman came in, and she just didn't want to have game shows on the air. Okay. She just didn't like game shows. There are just – haven't you – you've learned that. Yep. Some that there are just some want. people in this business that just don't like game Nothing shows. Nothing against her. She's a great executive and has had massive success, but she canceled our show. I got to wrap this up. Okay. So I'm just going to go through here <laughs> briefly because okay. I could do this with you all day. All right. Uh, you were involved in the early developments of Million Second Quiz, yes. The Wall, Ellen's Game of Games. Yes. You're currently the EVP of production development for Byron Allen's Entertainment Studios. Correct. Awesome gig. Yes. You're loving it the over there. The best gig. I love it. You've worked on reality and game shows in England, France, Germany, Canada, Mexico, Spain, Italy, Ireland, Scotland, China, the UAE. Yes. They've sent you all over the world yes. to recreate and get these formats up on their feet. Yes. Uh, you have a game show museum at your home. I do. And I don't know why we didn't just do this there. Because then you could, on the microphone, you could have just showed me things. Yes. So last question I want to ask you, what is your most treasured artifact? 
that you have at the house. If I was at your yes. house right now, what would you show me? Um, it would have to be Gene Rayburn's original microphone. Um, now, now, remind me who's Now, that? Gene Rayburn was the host of Match Game. Okay. okay. And among the things that Gene Rayburn became known for uh, was, it a, skinny was mic? a skinny microphone. Is the, okay, so I know it's the Bob Barker mic. Yeah, it was actually known more for Gene Rayburn. Bob right. Barker did use it, right. but it was identified with Gene Rayburn. Wow. And if you look at Match Game Now with Alec Baldwin, they've recreated the microphone. Now it's wireless, okay? Yeah. So it has a different bottom to it, a different base. But the microphone is an actual recreation so of the original. That's so great. But I have one of the ones, there were several, that Gene Rayburn used on the show. Uh, I have the original um, two showcase podiums from The Price is Right from 72. Wow. Uh, and the first game they ever played, which was the Any Number game. They've since – what happened is when I worked at CBS and they were going to retool a game, rebuild it, they threw out the old one. So when they were doing that with Any Number, which was the first game they ever played, I said – hey, instead of throwing it in the trash, could you give it to me? And they're like, yeah, sure, Is, is there an actual game show museum? It's not, it's, not a, it's not a museum that I charge admission. No, no, admission no. no, I know. Oh, no, there is no actual game show museum. Why don't you start there, one? Well, uh, Bob, you could, you could do a pop-up game show museum. You could get an art gallery. <laughs> no, I'm serious. You could get an art gallery on, on Mid-Wilshire. Yeah. You could do it as a two-week thing. You could bring your artifacts. You could get other studio prop houses yeah. to bring in other things. And you could do an actual game show museum. Now, here's the thing. This is my office at home. Yeah. This is a place that – this is my man cave, yeah. okay? This is a place that I've built up over 40 years of, of you know, classic pieces, things that I love. I don't want to share it. I know that's terrible. <laughs> I know that's terrible. But it's the stuff that I've collected and the stuff I – you know, I, I – this is what I love. Uh, tell the listeners, tell the peeps – what you want your tombstone to read. Um, it's a classic line that has said at the end of many, many game shows over the decades, and it's thanks for playing. You're the best. And thank you. Thanks for playing. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Was it good for you? I loved it. Good. Loved it. Awesome, man. Thank, thank you. you.